0: Uh, My name is Jim Cassiello. I'm an attorney at Goulson Stores in Boston in the Estate Administration Group. And um, I'm really uh, excited to present today about one of my favorite topics, the estate and gift tax. I realize the description says it's also about preparing fiduciary income taxes. Um, There would probably be no earthly way to cover fiduciary income tax returns, gift tax returns, and estate tax returns in one hour. Um, I was explaining this to one of my colleagues here at, at the, the office, and he said, you could probably explain that they exist, and then the time would be up. Um, but in any event, I'm going to try to go um, pretty comprehensively through the estate tax return, uh, well, the, the Form M-706 Massachusetts estate tax return, which necessarily includes the preparation of a, of a federal estate tax return, um, as well as how the, the gift tax um, interrelates with that, um, As Devin said, you know questions aren't just you know allowed but encouraged. I really um, relish the opportunity to try to help people to understand this or answer any questions they may have. So just feel free to fire them off in the um, Q and A, and we'll go through. Are there materials? Yes, there are materials. I'm going to link them in the chat. Um, There should be a. Let's see. No,
1: that's the wrong copy paste. Give me one moment, and I will try to send you a link. If you go to that link in the chat, you should be able to download
0: um, a few different things. There are my there's an outline that I prepared. Um, there's a sample asset list for what my um sample decedent owns and um as well as some drafts of the actual you know model estate tax returns themselves. So I'll be sort of going through the outline but I'm going to try to you know, look at this asset list as well as the returns themselves. So you can see how it it sort of goes together. Um, so with that said, you know, let me let me get it going. Um, so first, you know,
1: I may need to send it. Okay, BBSF, might have sent it again. Send it again. I didn't receive anything in the chat. How about, oh, it's got to go to everyone. Sorry, here we go. I used I've used Zoom before. I swear, <laughs> you should be able to get it now. I'm gonna guess that's a yes. If no one says no in the Q and A, okay. Apologies for that. Um, so you can, like I said, you can pull down these materials, and I'm just gonna start, you know, kind of walking through. them. So, you know, firstly,
0: you know, what is? Oh wait, uh, someone has raised their hand. Non-Saunders. Can someone reply in Q&A and say they can actually get the
1: link, just so I know you can get it? If not, I will find a way to get it to you. Yes. Okay, cool. It seems to be working. Thank you very much, Paul. All right. Okay. So, firstly, you know what is the
0: estate tax? Um, the estate tax is a one-time transfer tax imposed on the estates of decedents whose gross taxable estates are over a certain value. Um, this is separate from the estate income taxes. Maybe one of the more confusing things when you're working in estates, your access is blocked. Uh, I'm sorry, Amory, that's probably through your organization. If you email
1: me, uh, I will send you the materials. So I'll put my email in the chat and you can send me an email and I will send you all this stuff.
0: So the um, the estate tax, is a tr- it's a transfer tax. It's a snapshot of the die of the estate. This is opposed to an estate income tax, right? Where if you die owning probate assets, assets in your individual name, but don't pass in some other way, and these generate income, uh, for example, maybe the person had a brokerage account or just you know, a simple savings account. Um, until that account is distributed to the heirs or devisees of the estate and it generates income, that income will be taxed with the estate estate income is reported on form 1041 federally and form 2 in massachusetts um, on an annual basis so the returns are due april 15th same as they are for um personal income tax returns this is not that this is the one time estate tax return so you know what's the filing threshold well federally uh the current estate tax exemption is $12,920,000. Um, so as I say in, in the, the notes, this affects very few individuals at present. However, on January 1st, 2026, the federal exemption amount automatically goes back to $5 million index for inflation. So just something to be aware of is that that number is going to go way down. Um, the other thing to think is federally, this does this affects a relatively small amount of people. You know, if you ever hear... Um, someone on TV or a politician saying, you know, this affects small family farmers, just you know, change the channel. It's ridiculous. You know, you have to have nearly $13 million in your gross estate when you die for this tax to apply to you federally. However, in Massachusetts, we have or tied for the lowest state estate tax filing threshold in the country. In Massachusetts, you only have to die with $1 million um, in order for your estate to be subject to the mass estate tax you'd have to file a return so this affects a lot of people um because you know think of the values of real estate in massachusetts you know you can have a single family home in the kind of greater boston area in a retirement account and you're at a, a million bucks so um that does affect a lot of people um what's the deadline these returns are due nine months after um date of death now um they can be extended for six months. Um, you can get an extension of time to file, an extension of time to pay. Um, however, in Massachusetts, you have to pay 80% of the final estate tax due when you extend in order for it to be a valid extension. So when you're trying to, you know, sort of estimate how much you'll need to pay with the extension, you know, I always try to tend towards, you know, the, the higher side. I usually try to. Pay hundred percent of what my estimated taxes do, and I'd rather get a refund than owe penalties and interest uh, for my clients. And um, federally, you can you can extend as well, and you can have also you know have a reason why you need to extend or um, you can't make the payment of the time. So you know wh- what is an estate tax? It's a transfer tax. It's a tax on the privilege of transferring wealth from one generation to the next. Um, the Massachusetts state tax regime is tied very closely to the federal scheme. You know the Massachusetts estate tax provisions, which are found in uh, Mass General Law Chapter sixty-five C. Um, they pretty much mimic the federal scheme, and they even incorporate the federal statutes by reference. So when you're trying to learn the mass estate tax return, the you know you necessarily have to look at some of these federal statutes to understand how they work. Also, um, the mass estate tax Regime is tied to the federal estate tax as it existed in 1999. This seems kind of arbitrary, but the, the basis for it, and several states do this, is that um, there was a change in the federal estate tax laws in 2000. And what happened was, they changed um, the amount of state debt taxes, state-of-state state taxes um, that you paid to a given state that used to be a credit. Which is a you know a dollar for dollar reduction in your tax bill from a credit to a deduction, and so it sort of changed the map. So, what did a bunch of the states say? Ah, let's just do it back like we calculated it in nineteen ninety nine. So, when you prepare a form M seven hundred six Massachusetts Estate tax return, you have to also prepare and file a form seven hundred six United States estate and generation skipping transfer tax return. Uh, but the revision, July nineteen ninety nine form is the one you use. They're almost identical. The nineteen ninety nine version, the current one. I mean, you know, some of the formatting's changed and some of the the numbering of the items has changed. But the you know, sort of the the meat of it is is identical. Um, so something important to, to note now is to talk about just the gift tax system federally. So federally, the estate. Tax system and the gift tax system are one in the same or connected, I should say. And, and why is this? It's to prevent, you know, sort of deathbed transfers to completely avoid the estate tax. So, what the federal rules say is that you can transfer during your life and at death up to $12.9 million before you incur a tax. So, if you make a gift in a given year over what's called the annual exclusion amount, which is currently seventeen thousand dollars per person. So if you make a gift to someone, uh, you know, including a, a child or a grandchild or something, for say, you know, thirty thousand dollars, the the law says you're supposed to file a Form seven hundred nine gift tax return with the IRS, and you report that gift. If it was thirty thousand dollars of cash, you get to subtract out the seventeen thousand dollar annual exclusion, and you've now made a thirteen thousand dollar taxable gift. You don't owe any tax on this at the time. You're just reporting it to the federal government. But what you've done is you've reduced um, the, your exemption of 12 point, you know, 12920000 down to um, $12,907,000. You've used $13,000 of what you can transfer a debt. So now if you died, you can only transfer that 12000000 That's sort of how they're connected. You know, I always... Make the example, you know, the doctor says, Jim, you're going to die tomorrow. We'll pretend to have a taxable estate, which I certainly don't. And I say, oh, I'm going to give this all to my best friend, Steve. You know, oh, I have zero dollars. You know, it doesn't work like that. I made a, like a $20 million gift to Steve. Um, however, Massachusetts does not have a gift tax. So when you make those gifts um, and that you report to the federal government, you do reduce your $1 million Massachusetts estate tax exemption. But if you go down to zero, you don't start paying the tax. And the federal system, if you transfer you know, over that 12.9 million, you start paying the estate tax, the estate and gift tax during life as you make those gifts, you know, annually. Um and the federal system is pretty severe. It's a 40% flat rate. Um, so it's, it's huge. So there's really a lot of incentive for people to try to plan around this and and get money out of their estate as, as best they can. Um so you know what what is a taxable estate? Um taxable estate is is a a snapshot of you know the fair market value of all of the the assets that a person owned at their death that they didn't completely give away, as of you know, the value as of their date of death. Uh, so what does this include? It includes you know, things you own individually, of course, you know. Uh, Bank accounts, brokerage accounts, real estate in your own name. Um, It includes things that pass via beneficiary designation, like a life insurance policy or a retirement account. Um, It includes transfers into a revocable trust because that power to revoke a trust is considered, you know, essentially outright ownership. You could always just pull the stuff back out. So that's in your taxable estate. Jointly owned property is in your estate as well. You know, you have a joint. Account with a um a spouse, a child, a friend, you know, business associate, you have to include that in on um in your estate as well. Um, there's a good rule to note here, which is for jointly owned property. If you own property jointly with a spouse, you only report 50% of the value for your gross taxable estate. Um, if you own property jointly with anyone else beside the spouse, you include 100 percent of the value in the taxable estate. Now these are so, these are presumptions. So especially in the scenario where a decedent owns property jointly with a, a non-spouse, you know it may be that the decedent actually put all the money in there and it should be 100 percent theirs, well as it is, or maybe they, the other person put it in half or all the money. And you can, you know, kind of rebut this presumption with evidence in an affidavit. No, oh, you know, um, you know, John Smith, the decedent's best friend, actually put all the money in this account. It's a business thing they were doing or something, and so you would maybe include it as zero value. But that's just sort of important to to know. Um, I put some notes in there about esoteric cases. There's one important to remember called Gallenstein. Um, so for property interest purchase pre 1977 if the first to die spouse provide 100% of the consideration 100% is reportable on the first to die spouse's day tax return so you want to look for that one with usually older real estate is where you see that come up where you know um a couple people purchased it you know a long long time ago um and so i go through the schedules here on the outline of you know where you report it so there's the different schedules for different types of property on the return schedule a is Um, real estate. Schedule B is stocks and bonds. Schedule C is mortgages receivable, uh, notes and cash owned by the decedent. Uh, D is life insurance. E is that jointly owned property, as we said. Um, Schedule G is a big one. This is called transfers um, during the decedent's life, including retaining life interest and assets and trust, right? So this is your revocable trust. Um, You may have encountered in your time, um, the, the deed with a, with a life estate, you know, parents grant their property to their children, but they reserve a life estate, the right to live in that, usually the family home for the remainder of their lives. You know, your ungrateful children can't kick you out. I have small children, so I'm very much on the side of parents now forever. Um, and in that case, you transfer property away, the, the children have a, you know, a vested, um, remainder interest in the, the property but the the parents have the present you know income interest the right to live in there that's a transfer with the retained life estate under um, section 2036 the internal revenue code so that's includable in the um the life tenants estate and this can be a good thing because of the step up and basis rules um and then you have g which is general powers of appointment. Um. And I say meaning assets to which the decedent had control to direct the foundation of the assets. You often see general powers of appointment and trust. Um, a general power of appointment is one where you know a person has a power to direct assets to um, that include the person themselves, their estate, their creditors, or the creditors of their estate. Those are the big four. If you can give assets with your power to any of those four categories. It's a general power of appointment. And that means the property that's subject to that general power is includable in a person's taxable estate. So just by someone who made a trust giving a person power over those assets, whether or not the person ever exercises that power, the assets are includable in their estate. This is again, this is more of a trust concept generally, but um it's you know worth knowing. What you often see is Trust will give people a withdrawal right over a percentage of the trust principle. It'll, it's usually called a, it's called a five and five power it's under section 2041 of the internal revenue code where they say, Hey, the beneficiary can take 5% of this trust out once a year at the beginning of the year. And to the extent that the person doesn't take that money out, but they pass away while they had the ability to take that money out that 5% of that the trust will be includable in their estate and reportable here on schedule on schedule G. Then you have um schedule I which is annuities. This is, you know, um IRAs retirement accounts, um, private annuities, you know, qualified non-qualified, anything, you know, in that uh, nature of that type of products on schedule I. And then we have um, schedule F which is other miscellaneous property this sweeps up kind of most everything else your tangible property, vehicles, um, excuse me, collectibles like artwork or your stamp collection. Um, it also includes business interests and, and things of the like. And it can, you also see um, a Q tip trust of a pre deceased spouse um, will come up on there as well. And so let's look at so let's look at my sample decedent asset list for a minute because you know I'm I'm tired of seeing my face in Zoom already. Um, let me share this with you. So my my sample decedent here is named um, lovingly uh, Daniel D. Decedent because I'm you know not clever at all and I make silly names up for this stuff. And he very conveniently owns essentially like one of every type of asset a person could possibly own, right? So he's got some real estate here, um, stocks and bonds, life insurance, IRAs, bank accounts, and some other issues. We'll just go through them. If you're doing estate tax return work or administering estates in general, it's kind of critical to have some kind of you know, spreadsheet or form that you use like this to sort of track all the things that are reportable on the return. Um, and the way mine works here is, you know, is I'm trying to find out the fair market value of everything over here as of date of death. And then, or on the other side, well, where does it go after, after we die? Um, But probably the most important thing is to understand is where is, you know, who owns it or who owned it during life? Because the same asset could pop up on different schedules, depending on how it's owned. So think of real estate, right? Oh, I just own this real estate, 50%, um, we're going to call it a a tick interest, a tenancy in common. Um, but this other uh, parcel of real estate, 18B, because you next door, was owned in a person's revocable trust in Daniels, revocable Trust. So that goes on Schedule G. So this one goes on Schedule S, it goes on Schedule G. They're both real estate, but because the form of ownership was different, it goes in a different spot. If this was owned not as a tenant in common, but as a joint tenancy with someone, go on Schedule E. Um, then my um, decedent has a transfer on death account to his son. Um, a brokerage account. He has a life insurance policy and the beneficiaries are different folks. These One, one goes to his spouse, um, Sammy F. And this other one is a policy that he owned on the life of his daughter. So that's his asset that he owns, but it's not on his life. That doesn't go on schedule D. That's only for his life. It goes on schedule F. It's just a miscellaneous property that he owns. Um, then he's got a couple of IRAs, a traditional and a Roth. And with his bank account, he owns these things in many forms. One joint with his spouse, one's joint with his daughter, one is rev trust, um, and one's uh, just an individual certificate deposit subject to probate. Then we have some other miscellaneous things. Um, yeah. My friend Daniel recently got into hedge funds late in life, so he's got a couple of these hedge fund interests. You know, pretty high value here. And then, but he was a pretty um, conservative person with his vehicle. He's got a nice Ford Focus, 2001. Got a lot of miles on, still running great, well-maintained. Um, he saved it all for his art collection, worth 200000 So that's just my um, my sample asset list. And like I said, conveniently, you know, he owns one of everything. I am too short to keep the automatic light on. Sorry, I got to wave at it once in a while. Um, so that's, you know, his assets that he has. And so all of those things are, are things that Daniel owned, or he had control over during his life, enough that they're includable in his taxable estate. Um, so what's the rule how do we value this stuff you know the the rule is fair market value as of date of death so that it's different for different properties um if you have publicly traded securities like in a brokerage account there's a special rule it's the average of the um the high and the low of the day's trading prices on the date of death um so you know, D- Daniel died on um, December 31st, which is very convenient for the tax year, but you know, he might get, or his, his family might get a statement for December 31st, 2022, that says the brokerage account was this value. So when you get a regular statement from a, a custodian, it's typically gonna be closing market values. It's the end of day. So when you value it for a state gift tax purposes of the average of the high and low of the day's prices, It's going to be different, so it's something you have to kind of explain to people to understand because it doesn't seem right. You know, say, look, it says right here what the value is. Like, no, this is you know kind of weird special rule. Um, Something to note is you know for bank accounts and cash accounts, it's just you know what's the balance on the date date of death. Um, For real estate, you have to get a qualified appraisal by a licensed appraiser. This is not an opinion of value from a realtor. It's not the assessed value from the town on the tax bill. Um, it's not the Zillow or Redfin value, even though those are usually you know pretty close. Um, you're supposed to get an appraisal done. There's special lax rules on a first spouse to die's death based on these federal rules, but I don't want to go into that. Be able to Like you want the, the the general rule to be that you get this qualified appraisal. Um, and if you have antiques, art, or other collectibles, if the if an individual item or collection is worth over $3,000, you're supposed to obtain a qualified appraisal from a licensed appraiser. Um, an interesting note on real estate is that, you know, often um, folks who inherit it may want to sell it shortly after that they kind of know, maybe it was the family home or something, or you know, maybe no one's been living there recently or something. Um, Generally, a um, a sale price, even within up, or up to 15 months after death, there's some federal authority out there, a, a sale price from a third-party purchaser, that's your fair market value. You know, what someone is willing to offer you for the, the home is going to be, you know, as, as good as, if not better than an appraisal. Um, and the reason why valuation is so important um, in all this is because Part of how the estate tax system works is, you know, we're assessing this tax on a deceased person's estate, this transfer tax, right? And now these other folks are inheriting the property or someone else is succeeding to the interest a trust, other individuals, beneficiaries, et cetera. Um, most assets includable in a person's taxable estate will get a step up in basis as of the date of death. So basis is on... Generally, like what you paid for something. So you know, you buy a house for hundred thousand dollars back in you know 1980, right? That's your cost basis. If you turn around and sell that today for 1.1 million, you're taxed on the difference between your basis and your fair market value or your sale price of 1.1 million. So you have a one million dollar gain. Um, if you know you die when that house is worth 1.1 million and you paid hundred thousand dollars for it and it's includable in your taxable estate because you didn't give it away during life, you still own it. Your heirs or devisees take that property that they paid $1.1 million for. So if they turn around and sell it for $1.1 million, there's $0 of capital gain there, Um, which is kind of an incredible result because when you combine the mass capital gains tax and the federal rates, you can get up to 28.8% on a big sale like that. Whereas the mass estate tax caps out at 16%. And usually it's you know more like a 10% or so um, rate. Uh, let's see. And then, of course, there are some deductions that you can take on an estate tax return as well to reduce the, the amount of the taxable estate. So um, among those are funeral expenses and, and costs associated with the last sickness, that's Schedule J. You can take debts, including mortgages, liens, credit cards that are existing at the time of death. A great rule here to understand is, is property taxes. Property taxes can be a really significant deduction in a taxable estate, especially if the decedent own, you know, more than one um, parcel real estate. And the reason is this. Um, property taxes are a lien as against the property and they are assessed January 1 of the fiscal year. Um, or January 1st, um, but they're for a fiscal year starting usually July 1, right? That goes from July 1 to June 3rd the next year. So if a person dies in January of, of this year, they've already typically been assessed the entire property taxes for next year. And that's a lien against the property and that is deductible in their estate. So that can be a really big one because you might still owe you know, quarter three and quarter four of the last fiscal year too. So that's just a, a fun one out there. And we have a question. Um, to clarify, when you sell a house owned by the estate to a bona fide purchase of the value, and then do the estate tax run after the sale, you can use the purchase price on return rather than getting appraisal. Exactly right. Yes. So you can, you know, your proof would be, instead of attaching a qualified appraisal to your return, you would put in the person's sale agreement. Relatedly, you're probably going to need a... Um, Certificate releasing mass estate lien as part of that closing that you will have to get from the Department of Revenue ahead of time. I'll talk about that one in a second because that's an important part of the mass estate tax returns. Um, some other deductions you have are the expense administration, including attorney's fees, accounting fees, postage filing fees, and appraisal fees. Um, this can also include some expenses related to dealing with, um, you know, decedent's property and transferring it to beneficiaries. Here, I would say sort of the carrying cost of the decedent's real estate. So the rule in Massachusetts is that real estate passes automatically to a person's heirs or devisees on death, subject only to divestment for the um, debts, taxes, and expenses. So really, the heirs own the real estate the next day, even though it it seems to pass their estate, the person representative or the executor can only grab it back from those heirs if they need to liquidate it. To pay for um, expenses, debts, and taxes. That said, you know, um, I can speak for the Cassiellos. Our family home had enough Christmas decorations in it to, you know, do everyone in the on the block's house. So there was a lot of cleanup to do, you know, say when well, my aunt died, before you could really get it ready to transfer it to the successors and in interest. So you can usually take a few months worth of expenses of, you know, say dealing with the property. Um, it's a very Administration expenses is both a very broad category. Um, and then people do try to get too aggressive with it. So I would say be very careful and look at um, section 2053 of the Internal Revenue Code for some guidance and the regulations of, of what is a permissible um, expense administration. Um, I'm a believer in, you know, taking all the deductions possible for clients, but not, you know, being so aggressive that you're just inviting. An examination in a battle with either the DOR or the IRS. Um also, you know, charitable um charitable gifts or bequests um pursuant to a person's will or their revocable trust are um a deduction for the estate tax, but they have to be specified by the will or the trust. You, the family or the you know, the trustee PR can't say, oh, you know, this person really loved um you know, the Animal Rescue League, and they would have wanted to give some money. You know, everyone should give a $5,000 donation to them out of these assets. And that's great. And the beneficiaries and the heirs can agree to do that. But if the deceased person didn't say it, it's not a deduction. That's the people who succeeded to the interest taking the, you know, their interest and gifting it, you know, to a charity. So just a little important note on that one. Um, Another important item about deductions is Generally here, no double dipping. To the extent that a deduction is allowable, that a state tax return and a um, fiduciary income tax return, a Form 1041 or Form 2, the personal representative can only take the deduction on one return. So this plays into the marital deduction, which is found on Schedule M. To the extent that property passes, either directly or in a special type of trust, Called a qualified terminal interest property trust, a Q-tip, as all the trusts and estates folks call it. To the extent it passes to a, a citizen spouse, um, there's an unlimited marital deduction. You could have an estate that's worth, you know, $2 million that goes to a spouse or $200 million. That amount will be fully deductible. So the way that most spousal estate planning works is intentionally trying to. Minimize or completely avoid estate taxes on the first spouse's death by using the marital deduction. So, if that's the case and everything passes to a spouse, um, to the extent you have a deduction that you could use against estate income, you know, say there's these accounts or something that are generating a lot of interest and dividends, or take it on the estate tax return where. You have essentially, you know, no taxable estate because it all passed to a spouse. You typically want to take that on the fiduciary income tax return. So it's important to, you know, also um, be in communication with the the income tax preparer for the the person or the family who's going to be handling this stuff. So you make sure you're not, you know, you're not both trying to grab the same deductions. Um, let's talk quickly about estate tax lien releases because it's an important concept in the uh, estate and gift tax world. So, you know, Massachusetts, our lovely Commonwealth, places an automatic lien on all property a decedent's taxable estate in the event that a decedent's estate may own a tax. It's so right in General Law, Chapter 65C, Section 14 There's a similar rule federally, uh, but, you know, federal, fairly taxable states are much more rare because of the huge exemption. So, um Essentially, when you die, if it was includable in your estate, you know, the, the family-owned home, whether owned outright or in trust, there's this lien on it when you go to sell it. Um, and so in order to release the lien, you have to report the property on the estate tax return. There's a special page for it on the um, Form M706, which we'll look at in a second, That um, where you list out the property. and You give this, um, you know, thorough description of it. What's the street address? What is the... Um reference in the registry of deeds or the you know particular county district of the land court for uh, registered land. Um, it has certificate of title number, so it's like date of deed, book and page, certificate of title number, et cetera. And then when you file a return and the return is accepted as filed, um, the DOR issues you these certificates releasing masters to state tax lien. You can take these, you record these in the registry of deeds where the property lies, along with the debt certificate. And that serves to release the lien. If the estate is under the million dollar mass filing threshold, you can provide an affidavit, either the person representative, maybe it's the trustee of the trust that owns it, or what's called the person in possession. Now you didn't have an estate, a probate estate, but it went to a joint owner, you know, they're the ones making the affidavit. But any Event just says, you know, I certify under the pains and penance of perjury that no um the, the seed of did not require a Massachusetts estate tax return. You record that with the debt certificate and it releases the lien. Um, so it, the question was asked, it's a good one. What if they want to sell the estate, for the, sell the property before the um, estate tax return is filed? In that case, you can apply for a conditional release of the lien with the Massachusetts Department of Revenue. And I have to say, the folks in the estate tax unit of the Department of Revenue are pretty great to work with. They're you know. They answer the phone. You know they they, they communicate. They're responsive. Um, the IRS is getting a lot better because they added some funding to it. But if any of you deal with the IRS in any regard and try to call a phone number, it's just you know you're on hold listening to this pastoral acoustic guitar music. It's slowly driving you insane. And after two hours, they might answer you. your call. Might get hung up on. So in any event, the DOR is pretty good in this regard. Um, in order to conditionally release the lien. All you need to do is um, you can set up an account with Mass Tax Connect, which is the DOR's um, website for certain types of entities, and estate is one of them. And then you provide them with a copy of the fully executed person sale agreement and um, the most recent deed. And you have to tell them about any other real property in Massachusetts in the person's estate. And you also have to either pay the tax. And then you might say, well, what if we don't have the money to pay the tax until we sell the property? Well, if you, if you don't have the, the state doesn't have the money to pay the mass estate tax at the time, they can provide a draft, closing disclosure, settlement statement, HUD one, whatever you're using in the transaction that shows that out of the sale proceeds, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts will be paid their estate tax. Um, if you give the DOR these things, you know, you upload them electronically, they turn these around generally really quickly. Um, usually within a few business days. So uh, again, it's really helpful when you're trying to facilitate a closing because that's, as an estate tax return preparer, you might be pulled in in the periphery of these these estate tax or rather these real estate conveyances. So um, that would be sort of your role as a person preparing the return is to assist in obtaining this lien release. Um, There's also a federal lien release But they are more strict about when they will actually grant them, but they also have a much, much longer lead time and a more comprehensive list of what you have to provide them um, in order to get a federal lien lease. And they recommend filing 45 days ahead of time in order to obtain the the federal lien lease. So if you have a, a federally tackled state with which you're working, and they're trying to sell property that was in the decedent's name, and the federal um, estate tax lien applies. You need to let the conveyancing attorneys know that you know they have to budget in this time for their closing date, or make it contingent on receiving the federal lien release, so that the the buyer has you know good good title through the estate. So um, again, just these weird little instances where the trust and estate world does cross over a lot with some other um, areas of the law. Um, one of the last things I want to talk before I get into the very fun forms is the, um, the concept of portability and what, what portability is, is a, it's a federal concept. So it's not a mass concept, federal only, but what it says is that as between spouses, a, um, a surviving spouse can claim the unused amount of the deceased person's $12.9 million, um, federal estate tax exemption so really when you look at two spouses combined they can transfer almost 26 million dollars at their death or during life to you know basically anyone they want their family trust for people's benefit you know favorite individuals whatever so it's pretty substantial um so the way this works is you have to um you have to file a federal estate tax return, even if one isn't, if you're not required to file federally, because you have, you know, over $13 million, basically. So say a person has a $3 million estate. Um, it all goes to the spouse, right? It's three million bucks. You didn't use any of your um, you're not really using any of your exemption because it's fully deductible. You had a, they had a $13 million. Well, say you have a you know, $12.92 million dollar estate on the nose, it all goes to to a person's spouse, to $12.9 million deduction, and you've um You've used zero dollars of your exemption because it all passed to your spouse. However, you file the federal return to elect portability. I'll show this is in the form, and um, the spouse gets that twelve point nine million dollars. So now they have effectively, you know, twenty six million dollars with which they can make gifts or, or transfer assets at their death. Um, when you do not have to file a federal estate tax return in nine months because you're not over the the federal threshold, um, the IRS recently relax the rules even further. used to have two years instead of nine months. Now they said back in 2022, you got five years to file this return. And this is just something that really you almost want to do as a matter of course when you advise clients. You know, you you tell them, look, even though a federal return is not required, you know, we recommend filing one um, to claim portability. And you get this free exemption. You know, hey, maybe... One of us has to win that Powerball sometimes, right? You know, maybe you end up with a lot more money, or you know, you have a relative, somewhere you didn't know about the extravagant estate, you know, these these lovely uh, financial fantasies, right? Um, it's basically free exemption. And when you file for portability only, as I mentioned earlier, the rules are a little um lax in terms of the valuation. It's it's more of a, you know, it's in the, the portability regulations under um IRC or Internal Revenue Code Section twenty ten um, explains what the requirements are in that scenario, but that's where you could, you know, theoretically use things like opinions of value for real estate instead of getting the appraisal. Um, and then when you prepare these estate tax returns, most preparers use some type of software to do it. And you essentially to do a mass return because you have to file a federal return. to existed in nineteen ninety nine you're generally already preparing a federal return for the current year. So it's really just a matter of printing that thing out, getting it signed and sending it to the IRS. You know, it's like, again, it's free exemption. So you might as well use it. Um, That said, a client say, no, I really don't want to do it. I'm trying to keep, you know, my costs. Absolutely. But you just want to say, you know, I offer this to you all this free exemption in the event they are that, you know, lucky lottery winner. Um, That said, let's, let's look at the returns themselves and see, you know, how they work. And, I'll show you the mass form, but honestly, the mass form is, you know, a a typical, ugly Massachusetts um, tax form, and it, like, so here, and it doesn't, um, move to the middle. So I'm looking at you guys sideways, and it really just summarizes what's on the return in the back. So you know, here's your deceased person. I'm the preparer, and there's some questions you have to answer on these returns. And they're really trying to get at things like, you know, do you have an interest in property so did you transfer away? Did you gift away things during life and take a discount and say they were worth less than their actual value? Um, there's concepts like that in the trust planning world, but you know, a little outside of scope here. And then look, it's repeating what we have here: the real estate, the stocks and bonds, et cetera, um, the total gross estate, and then the deductions. Here's the good stuff here. Here's the CF 1999 revision. Um, and here we have line one, our total gross estate. And then we have our total allowable deductions, which I got down to exactly a million bucks, which is magically, right? The amount um, you can die with in Massachusetts before you have to pay an estate tax. So that's generally the goal. We want to get exactly a million bucks because you want to, um, you theoretically want to use that exemption the massing because it's not portable. We want to make sure that that actually gets to um, usually a trust for the benefit of family members or just, you know, outright to someone, because it can't, that cannot be transferred over to a spouse magically. You know, you just can't, there's no portability in Massachusetts. Um, then you go through and it, there's all these questions again, where it, it asks you, um, oh, sorry, I breezed by here. You know, did you ever file any gift tax returns? No, because you got to report those gifts. That's part of your estate tax. Did you lifetime gifting? Um, Was there insurance on the deceased's life that's not included in the gross estate? So a common technique is people make irrevocable life insurance trusts. Um, So there's insurance on your life, but it's purposely not in your estate. So you might tick yes. And you have to explain these things to the tax authorities. You know, any trusts you created, did you own any businesses, et cetera? Um, you get the same recap that you saw in the mass return. And then you go through your schedules, right? So schedule A, real estate. You know, I tried to give you you guys here the um the thorough um descriptions that I use. You know, there's pretty robust instructions for Form 706 federally, and that's sort of what you want to use. And something, you know, absolutely essential to you know recall here is that you um you need to have the statement. For any position you're taking on this return. You know, client sends you an email. Yeah, this much was in the bank account at day to death. And so you, you say, thank you kindly. Can I please have a copy of that statement? You know, because you want to be able to provide that to the DOR, or the IRS, as proof of, you know, where that position came from. So okay, we have scheduled on our real estate. This is our 50% tenancy and common interest. Um, for schedule B, we'll see attached. We had this Fidelity brokerage account which is transfer on debt to, to Samuel's son. And so I, I do a valuation report. I have software that does, if you can do it manually, that does that high and low of the, the stock prices on a given day. Um, then we have mortgage notes, and cash, which was my famous certificate deposit here for 12 grand. Now, Schedule C instructors say you don't have to provide a statement. So I said, get that bank account statement. They don't ask me to provide it, but they certainly will in an examination. So you do want to have it, but you don't have to put it in the description. These are the weird little idiosyncrasies of um, you know really trying to do it precisely. Schedule D is insurance on the decedent's life, so it's twenty five thousand dollars John Hancock policy. Remember, he also owns a policy, but it's on the life of his child, so that's not on his life. You know, life insurance not on Schedule D. That goes on Schedule F. Schedule E, we have jointly owned property, so he owned this um, account with his. With his spouse, Sammy's spouse, for $30,000. But look down here, amount included in the gross estate, only 15 grand. Okay. This is important for getting the filing threshold. If a person had um, $1.8 million, right, in their gross estate, line one, but everything was, well, everything they own was jointly with their spouse, then it would really only be $900,000 it was reportable. They wouldn't even have to file a mass estate tax return. So that's the thing I want you all to remember from that, is this thing, is the software or, or you cut in half. So this is Schedule E part one, probably with a spouse. Part two, all the joint interest. This is the account with the daughter. We fully include that because the presumption is um, if you own things jointly with a non-spouse, you gotta pick up 100% of all that return. Then we have miscellaneous, uh, scheduled miscellaneous property. Here's where my fancy venture fund stuff comes in. Um, the art collection, my lovely Ford Focus, and that life insurance policy. Kind of like everything else that's swept in here. Then we have Schedule G. This is going to be things that I said, transfer where you retained an interest in it or where um, you transfer to a revocable trust. So here he put some assets in his trust. He put his property 18 Beacon Street in there. He put a money market account in there and he had one of his um, hedge fund interests in there. And so, even though these would normally go on different places, they're all on Schedule G because it's who is the owner, you know, like a form of ownership as of date of death. Um, Then we have annuities, we have the IRAs, and the um, and we list the beneficiaries because you want to know who those go to. And then we have expenses, funeral expenses, um, you know, cost of burial and perpetual upkeep. You can get a the the collation, the lunch and after. You can take Executive commission, attorneys fees, and accounting fees. Here's my appraisal fees, et cetera. These all come off the estate. And then um, we had a big balance on our, our credit card. Remember, you know, pretty much no one dies having paid every single bill. So there's, there's often something that's a debt, you know, um, like small debts of that nature. And then these real estate taxes, see, these go on mortgages and liens because in mass they are leaning against the property. And I got some pretty big ones in the year. Um, and then we have Schedule M, which is the the quest of surviving spouse. So this is two parts. The top part is for well, sorry, the new returns is it's um They're split up. On the 1999, it's it's all one box here, but we specify the Q-tip properties trusts. And I'll explain those kind of quickly. And then, and it also passes to the spouse goes in this as well. So that's your, you know, your quick slap through the return. Mortgage on a real estate owned what is supposed. Can we deduct the entire mortgage amount? Yes. If it's like a joint survey liable, correct. However, the rule is to the extent um in, in that scenario, right? You report the full
1: value of the um of the property, and then you take the mortgage as a deduction on
0: schedule um K up here, or L rather. Sorry, K, okay. <laughs> K2. So you can't do a net figure all the time to um, try to reduce the taxable estate. However, and I want to look this up. I think I remember it by heart. If you look at Treasury Regulation 20, uh,
1: 2053, I think it's dash it, seven. And yes, that's the one
0: 20.253 dash seven. That's a, that's the rule for unpaid mortgages. There's different rules if the decedent's estate isn't is liable for it. So that's when you can use the net figure. Um, and let me just stop this. And one thing I also want to share with you for open up for questions is sort of how does this work in the context of trust? Because a lot of times when you have folks who have taxable estates, they've done some some trust planning. And the common formulation is that you, um, when a person dies, their their trust divides into multiple trusts um, to minimize taxation. So usually you have what's called a family, an exemption, or bypass trust. And what that typically says is, put the maximum amount of money that I can put in this without causing any state or federal estate taxes. And that's based on how much money you give away during life. So in mass, you start with a million, but if I made $200,000 in taxable gifts, now I have $800,000. I can only put $800,000 in that trust. And then typically what it says is, take anything above my exemption and put it in a trust that will qualify for the marital deduction, the unlimited marital deduction. That's a Q-tip trust, right? And you have to elect Q-tip treatment by actually tick in boxes on these tax returns. That's how you make the election. The rule on the Q tip says, great, we're not going to include this trust, or, you know, we're not going to tax you on this trust when the first spouse dies. However, when the second spouse dies, we're going to look at the value of that trust, you know, what's left in it, and we're going to include that in your estate when when the second spouse dies. So they let you defer the tax, but not necessarily fully avoid it. But if when the person died, the trust was twelve million dollars, and then during the spouse's life, it's spent down to say eight million dollars. When the spouse dies, the spouse includes eight million dollars. They don't include the you know twelve it was worth when the first spouse died. Um, so, looking quickly at um, my beloved asset list, I'm always trying to um, you know kind of look at this stuff here. So I did a little example down the bottom of how you kind of look at this. So of all, and this is over in my trust here, right? 11.5 million goes to this trust. Um, and then I take the, um, and then the probate assets go to the trust too, because that's the common formulation. Everything that's probate sent to my trust. And then I take out the expenses paid from it and I get 22.5 million to fund it. My exemption trust is only $190,000. You say, wait a minute. Daniel was, uh, was tight-fizzy. He didn't give away any any money during life. But at his death, other people beside his spouse got money. His son got the brokerage account straight out. Um, his children got this IRA, and his daughter got this joint account. So $810,000 here passed to people other than a spouse that uses the million dollars. So we can only create $190,000 exemption trust. And then above that, we made a Q-tip trust. We made a mass Q-tip and a federal Q-tip. So what happened here was we used the amount. This was actually based on 2022 value, sorry. We used the amount between the mass exemption and the federal exemption because it's huge. It's like 12 million bucks, right? Oh, there it goes again. Hello. (laughs) Hello. We used that. We have like $11 million between the two. And so we we can do a Q tip for mass purposes only, which means we didn't use a federal Q tip. We used our federal exemption, and so that trust is only includable for Massachusetts purposes when the second spouse dies. But the federal government doesn't get to count it. This one that's a mass and a federal Q tip, everyone's coming for that thing when the second spouse dies. That's going to be taxed in um, both for mass and for federal purposes. But remember, to the extent that something is taxed in a person's estate and it's not uh, an IRA or New Year retirement account, it's generally gonna receive a step up in basis. So the assets still in those Q-tip trusts will get a step up either for mass purposes or for mass and federal purposes. So it's, you know, it the the way that the system works in mass and federally is we put all the burden to tax on the estate, and generally the heirs now get this step up in basis and they can sell um, assets at no income tax um, if they sell them closely near death or with an incredibly reduced income tax than the deceased person would have received. Oh, I'm sorry, I prattle on. There's a lot to cover. Can you see now why I couldn't do 1041s at the same time or really go thoroughly through um, you know, a gift tax return, which is has a lot of subtleties to it with um, how you allocate generous, skipping, transfer, et cetera. Um, with that said, I'd love to open it up for any questions that anyone may have about any of this stuff. It can be collateral related. Um, you know, I love trust and estates and tax, and I'm
1: always happy to share whatever I, I might know about it with other people. I'm staring at the chat, no no Q&A questions coming in, but what
0: is the 60K in the second to die box? Okay, yes, great, great question. So that is, I did an example of how the the calculation is done for the Massachusetts state tax. So if you look at the form 706 uh, revision 1999 uh, instructions, I think it's page 12, they show you how to calculate the state um, death tax credit. And that's how the mass estate tax is set. And what it says is, take the adjusted taxable estate, which is the gross estate tax, less deductions, and then minus 60K. It's just a totally arbitrary figure that you know Congress and the IRS put in there. So it's just part of how you do the math. <laughs> so it's, um, that, that's the answer on that one. That's just how it works.
1: And then, and of course, and oh, and, and to um, the extent anyone else, um, Anyone else's is, um, you know,
0: link filtering at their office blocks Google Drive where I sent those materials. Please feel free to just send me an email and I'll, I'll email them to you. I had the same thing at my office. I can't download stuff from my own Google Drive or or Gmail, so I totally get it. Um, yeah, and if anyone has a question, that comes up with it, or you know, you find yourself doing a state tax return, like I said I'm always happy to to try to answer questions or, or help out. You know, um, I feel like in the log of one big community. Uh, always tr- like working hard to find the correct answer to things right it's complicated every matter and every client has different facts and you know you think you know something cold and you end up having to research more or um try to formulate it so um again it's been you know it, it's a, it's an honor to speak with you all on this uh, and like i said it's um I, I really enjoy this stuff and i'm glad i'm not boring my wife or other uh you know friends and associates so uh with that like thank thank you very much for your time